Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Journeys into the Deep City with Tom Chivers and his new book, London Clay. Tom Chivers is a writer, publisher and arts producer. He has released two pamphlets and two collections of poetry, the latest being Dark Islands. His poems have been anthologised in Dear World and Everything in It and London History and Verse. And he was shortlisted for the Michael Marks and Edwin Morgan Poetry Awards and received an Eric Gregory Award in 2011. Tom has made peram- Tom has made perambulatory, site-specific and audio work for organisations including Lyft, Cape Farewell, Humber Mouth and Southbank Centre. And he was writer-in-residence at Bishopsgate Institute, an associate artist of the National Centre of Writing. And Tom's book, which we're going to be talking about today, Tom's debut non-fiction book, is London Clay, Journeys in the Deep City. Tom, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Tell us, first of all, where the idea came from for the book, then how did this come about? Well, somebody said to me recently, this is the book that you've always been trying to write. Um, And I think to some extent that is true, um, because I've been writing about London for years and years, mostly in poetry. But specifically, this book came about because about seven years ago, I was asked to do a project by a climate change arts organisation called Cape Farewell. You mentioned them just now. And I didn't really know how to write about climate change. But I said, look, the thing I am interested in is the landscape of London, and maybe I could kind of shoehorn uh, the environment into that. So I ended up making a series of what I call urban pilgrimages. They were basically audio walking tours down some of London's lost rivers. And that got me thinking about the whole hidden landscape, the geology of London, and how it has determined everything about the way that the city has developed its history, the way that we use it today. So I basically bought a Street Finder map, uh, a street map of London, I began to plot the geology of London, including the Lost Rivers, over that map. And almost every story that is in London Clay emerges in some way from that exercise of kind of cartography, if you like. Yeah, and so most of the stories are basically perambulations following the roots of one of the lost rivers and you know, yeah. discussing what's around it. As, you know, as you said, this is the book you've always been writing and indeed these stories take place over a number of years going back a good decade at least and so the book also works therefore as memoir as well so you talk about you know your life your upbringing everything so let's talk about that element about using 
yourself, your own past and identity as part of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tricky thing when you're writing about a city that's changing constantly. You know, change is the watchword of the whole of the history of London. And um, I felt like I needed to ground it in something singular, which is, of course, me, albeit I'm also changing. And so I go back and look at my childhood um, growing up in South London in the second chapter and try and kind of understand why or if that particular upbringing in an area which is both urban but also has aspects of I was going to say suburban, but almost the pastoral, how that had kind of affected the way that I saw London as a natural landscape and the way in which I'm drawn to places in the city that are edge lands, that are kind of liminal spaces between the urban and the, the non-urban, the, the man-made and the wild. So I went back to the uh, woodland called Dulwich and Sydenhill Wood in the second chapter of the book, and, and, uh, and I explore the valley of the River F for where I was, where I was born and, and try and understand you know, how how that affected the, the whole way that I see the city. And as you said, you talk about, you're not a geologist, but you, you no. use a, um, like a, a geological map of the city as a sort of basis when you're going out and doing these walks rather than any sort of later fixed map of the city. Um, yeah. I want to I wanna talk about that, about the layers of the city, but, but to get us there, let's just imagine... If we were to, you know, somehow go back to pre-Roman times, before there was a permanent crossing yes. of the river that we call the Thames, what would the landscape look like? I think this is a really important question. And it's one of the things that I, I hope that people get from London Clay. It's just that very basic understanding of what the natural, and I'm kind of doing air quotes as I say, natural landscape of, of London is. And as you say, before the coming of the Romans, who founded Londinium and who were the first kind of great terraformers of the landscape. London, you know, it's a river valley. So you've got the Thames in the middle, you've got um, marshland. Very importantly, you've got marshland riddled with creeks, little islands in the middle, um, particularly south of the Thames. So areas like Southwark and Lambeth, and I mean, I live in Rotherhithe, areas like that as well, but also the Isle of Dogs, uh, Pimlico and Westminster, Wapping. These were all areas dominated by wetlands. And really, over the course of 2000 years, what we Londoners have done is we have uh, we have dried out those wetlands and we have revetted and embanked the River Thames and turned it into a much narrower river than it was 2000 years ago. Um, You have to imagine the, the Romans crossing a much, much wider river than the current Thames that we know. But of course, because it was wider, it was also shallower because it wasn't forced into this very deep channel. And that's why when the Romans, uh, when the first Roman invasion of, of Britain occurred, um, it's quite possible that they forded the river somewhere around Lambeth without a bridge. They may have used a military pontoon or they may have forded it using horses or some people actually say elephants. So it's a very, very different landscape. And one of the things I was particularly interested in doing was, was yes, finding the, the lost rivers and the creeks and so on that have been bricked over, but also to look for these islands, these little raised gravel areas in the marshland of places like Pimlico and Westminster and Bermondsey. And, and, and that takes up, uh, you know, a couple of the chapters of, of the book. Um, and just say something about the general geological stratas of the yes. area. Obviously, again, a lot of the land of, of London as it is now is obviously going to be dominated by the alluvial plains. Yeah, that's right. The basic geology of London is you, you've got the bedrock is London clay of the title, of course. Um, but above that, you have um, layers of, of deposited material that geologists know as superficial material. Superficial because it is laid upon top the, the London clay. 
and that includes gravel, sand, uh, silt, and of course the alluvium which you mentioned, which represents the former floodplain of the River Thames, but also represents the former floodplains of, of much smaller rivers. So if you look at a geological map of London, you can identify very clearly where the River Fleet, for example, goes, because you can follow this little kind of, I think in the book I might describe it as a witch's finger, just penetrating the gravel terraces of the Thames, uh, going north up towards kind of King's Cross area. So the geology kind of tells you a truth about London that, that otherwise is hidden or, or, uh, or invisible. Um, and you also get areas where, for one reason or another, the, the superficial deposits have been eroded away um, to reveal the London clay itself. And I grew up in a place in South London called Herne Hill, um, where indeed that, that is the case. And um, we used to get big clumps of London clay coming out of the, uh, the back garden when I was a kid. So we'll go through some of the, the various chapters, the various perambulations. And, and, and to begin with, you know, as you said, London is constantly changing. I mean, obviously at a much faster rate now, but it always has been a changing place. And the first chapter in the book is, is based around a hole in Oldgate, a sinkhole, <laughs> yes. a former, the former site of, you know, one of the very many sort of old and abandoned railway tunnels or tube stations. Yes. Again, this is a, a great example of something where, you know, don't bother going and looking for it now yeah it, i mean it, it's a really the book all, all of the chapters are walks across um you know some of them are walks along lost rivers some of the kind of circular walks and others are sort of various rambles uh, around landscapes but the first chapter is very different i wanted in a way to do a kind of tester uh, a bit like a test pit if you're an archaeologist and for me the tester was Aldgate, somewhere i'd lived uh, for nine years i still work there in fact um right on the edge of the city of london just as it becomes the east end and I've been watching all the years I've been in Aldgate, this um, scrap of wasteland right in the middle of the Aldgate roundabout, you know, surrounded by burgeoning skyscrapers of the city of London. And this scrap of wasteland just never seemed to disappear. Um, and it seemed like a kind of anomaly in the city and particularly in this city that is changing so much and, and is dominated by, by money. And um, I discovered that the whole was, in fact, the remains of a tube station, the old Aldgate East before it moved a hundred yards or so further east down Whitechapel Road, and um, and that really began a kind of voyage of adventure into this very hole, um, literally and also historically, and discovering that beneath the remains of the or next to the remains of the tube station, uh, again in this little patch of wasteland that was yet to be developed, um, there were also the remains of an Elizabethan playhouse called the Boar's Head. And, you know, exploring Aldgate, not only looking at the history of that wasteland, but also drawing in my own memories, um, things that happened in Aldgate, political protests, the 7-7 bombings, and also bringing in um, other historical characters like Geoffrey Chaucer, who used to live above the Aldgate, uh, where he wrote, you know, Troilus and, and Crusade and some of his amazing early uh, dream visions. You know, so I was kind of stirring this, this kind of cooking pot of material about Aldgate and trying to find you know, a way, a way through. Um, so that really becomes like the test chapter for this strange process of, of mapping and walking and researching a landscape, starting with what lies beneath it. So tell us something else about the, the various lives of the Boar's Head Playhouse. <laughs> this is, it's a place that basically, this is pre-Shakespeare. This is at a point yeah. where just literally just putting on a play is something that's barely even allowed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's um, it's not a purpose-built theatre like the Globe or the Rose and those famous uh, amphitheatres south of the Thames. 
Um, the Boar's Head was actually an inn. It was a pub, basically. And it was on the edge of the city because um, a lot of people coming, you know, um, into the city of London from Essex or even from abroad would stop at the old gate um, and it would, it would provide lodging for travellers. Um, and then eventually it was, it was turned into um, a theatre in, uh, in I, think, I believe, the 1650s. But in 1557, the production of a play, a lewd play entitled A Sack Full of News, for some reason that is unknown to us, caught the attention of the authorities and theatre was banned from the Boar's Head for a good kind of 40 years. And it was then basically turned into, um, it was kind of renovated by a bunch of theatre impresarios and, and they all ended up kind of buying stakes in the theatre um, so we're much more in the kind of um, in the sort of Shakespearean period. It was um, it was basically brought up by a bunch of different theatre impresarios. They all had different stakes in the theatre, and they all got into a massive business competition with each other. And uh, one of them actually ended up uh, attacking the other and kind of sending round goons to to stop plays mid performance. It is all very kind of um, exciting, really. And and all of this is really an unknown history because everybody's interested in you know Shakespeare's Globe and and to a lesser extent the Rose and, and the Curtain and, and the theatre in Shoreditch, but this. This converted in, I think, on the edge of the city is, is of real interest. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tom Chivers and we're talking about his book, London Clay, Journeys in the Deep City. And 
Tom, to start the second half, I, I want us to go back to to where you grew up, to Herne Hill and, and the Dulwich borders, and your following of the um, your latterly following the Ambrook, a brook that you weren't even aware of when you were actually growing up there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I knew I must have I must have seen it because it's right in the middle of this this um, urban woodland called Dulwich and Sydenham Hill Wood. I used to play truant in when I was um, when I was a teenager. I used to go there and you know do things that teenagers do. But um, I never knew what it was, and I'd certainly never connected this tiny, tiny stream up with the much better known lost river, the River Ephra. Um, I did become aware of the Ephra and then all the other lost rivers. I think probably in my late teens, maybe seventeen, eighteen. Um, and I, I always say that I, I grew up on the banks of the Ephra first in Herne Hill, and then uh, for a few years in West Norwood as well. And I just wanted to go back and, and explore that that whole valley. The woodland itself is, again, it's about finding an anomaly. Um, Dulwich and Sydney Hill Wood is an amazing place you know, in the middle of South London. You just wouldn't expect this ancient woodland. There's actually the last remnant of the Great North Wood, this vast, vast area of woodland stretching from Selhurst all the way up to Deptford. And you just wouldn't expect it in the middle of South London. And you can stand right in the middle of the wood where there's this incredible abandoned railway tunnel for the the old railway to the Crystal Palace. You can stand there and you can imagine yourself, you know, hundreds of miles away. So I wanted to go there and, and you know, find the source of the, the Ambrook and, and learn a bit more about, about that woodland. And then after that, I ended up uh, following another tributary of the River Ephra, the one that goes up to West Norwood. And, and I ended up in, this, in the cemetery of West Norwood, uh, which is where my mother is buried. And that chapter really is about trying to, I suppose, trying to unpick or uh, explore how losing a parent very young can kind of affect the way that you see a place um, and the kind of significance that you, I think the significance not only that you give to a particular place, and, and for me it's this, this cemetery which is perched on the hill above the Ephra, but also the significance that you place on things that you can't see, things that are lost, things that are, are no longer visible. West Norwood Cemetery is one of the um, the so-called Magnificent Seven cemeteries that, that ring London that were built to relieve the inner inner city cemeteries. Yeah, West Norwood is um, you know, built in the 1860s. Um, as you say, it's one of the Magnificent Seven. It's kind of a ring of Victorian cemeteries, um, overspill cemeteries, really. But West Norwood's quite interesting because it was known as the Millionaire Cemetery and uh, became, became known as somewhere quite fashionable to be buried. So, for example, the... Uh, the Dalton family, um, you know, the, the ceramic plate family, uh, they were they were buried there and they've got this incredible mausoleum covered in decoration and Bible verses and things like that. Um, and it's also known for being the place where various immigrant communities in South London have been buried over the years, you know, whether that's uh, European or Afro-Caribbean. Um, there's actually a, a kind of sealed off part of West Norwood, which is the Greek part where there's a kind of miniature replica of the um the acropolis or the parthenon i should say so you know it's a really interesting cemetery and the ephra used to run at the bottom of the of the hill that the cemetery is built on and i went on this fantastic walk with a, a guy called colin fenn um who's a local resident but also used to be involved in the cemetery in a more official capacity and uh, he helped me find the the root of the ephra basically by walking from manhole cover to manhole cover you know, like many of London's lost rivers, the Ephra was, was bricked over. And you can imagine that, you know, when you were establishing a, a grand Victorian cemetery in South London, having an open sewer running at the bottom of the cemetery is, uh, is, is not, not like a wise commercial choice. So they bricked it over um, again, I think, in the, uh, in the 1860s. 
but all of these lost rivers have you know they, they they continue to have a presence in the landscape and you know in many places in london the lost rivers continue to be the source of flooding because of course if you brick something over you know you limit its capacity to to flood naturally and uh you see the kind of flooding that, that we've seen recently in london in places like um pudding mill in, in east london let's talk we're going to talk about uh, another one of the the bricked over rivers next the walbrook yeah, tell us something about this this route that you follow. Because in the book, this much more closely follows the experience of taking one of your audio tours. Yeah, that's right. The um, the Walbrook and the Neckinger were the two rivers that I made these um, these audio pilgrimages. I call them uh, going down down the Lost Rivers. Um, the Walbrook is you know it's a very important river because it really was the first river of London of of, of the Roman city of Londinium. It was the freshwater supply. Uh, it was in the very early Roman city. It was the uh, western boundary of the city. And then uh, later when the city expanded, it went right through the middle. And you can still trace it today. So if you're walking through the city of London and you go to uh, the Bank of England and then you look up towards St. Paul's, which is on top of, uh, of of Ludgate Hill. And then you look up the other direction and you can see Corner Hill uh, rising up and you can very clearly see that you are in a valley. So I, I had a lot of fun walking with various groups people down the river Walbrook and looking for signs of the old river and sometimes they were they were obvious signs so for example I did actually join a, an archaeological dig on the banks of the Walbrook but but other times you were just looking for um strange almost like urban mementos things that for you represent the city uh, represent the river sorry even if they don't have a direct connection so for example I became mildly obsessed with uh one of these wonderful disused Victorian drinking fountains that is right at the top of Cousin Lane just before you hit the River Thames and the mouth of the Walbrook. And, um, and for me, you know, to have a, a disused Victorian water fountain on the kind of course of the Lost River seemed to kind of suggest some kind of watery connection. And, uh, and in the book, I, I explore how London's water table has actually been changing since Victorian times and, and, and how really our entire relationship with water it needs to be kind of rethought, particularly in light of, of climate change. Um, so it was a great adventure down the Walbrook, and, and of course it's one of those ones where you end up actually on the Thames foreshore, and you can go and find the uh, the mouth of the Walbrook, which is a, a sewer down by some some waste barges. But you know this is a very important river, as I said, it, it provided the fresh water for Roman London, but it was also an industrial river, and you know animal bones were chucked in there, and various waste products from the the Walbrook industries were thrown into that river, um, and it was also somewhere associated with with a, a sacred site. Um, there's a place called the, the London Mithraeum or the Temple of Mithras, which is a, a Roman era underground temple that was discovered in the 1950s um, and has actually recently been uh, rebuilt basically in the basement of uh, Bloomberg's European headquarters. Um, this is on a, on a road called Walbrook. And this, this was an underground uh, cult temple to uh, a deity um, probably of Persian origin called Mithras, um, who is represented by the figure of a young man, um, often in the pose of slaying an astral bull. And, uh, and this temple was on the banks of the, the Walbrook, and that was no coincidence because water was in fact used as part of the rituals um, that took place in, in that temple. So, you know, with the Walbrook, like many of these lost rivers, you, you have uh, you know, a freshwater stream that latterly becomes a sewer. It has these kind of sacred connections um, and of course it was all bricked up in the 1860s by Basil Jett's uh, extraordinary sewer system 
The Temple of Mithras is a great example of one of those sites. Obviously, the city of London, the heart of the financial district, is constantly changing, constantly being built. New buildings are going up all the time, but this is obviously also the oldest part of the city. And so whenever there's one of these constructions, Roman remains or older remains are found underneath, you know, in the, um, in the basements of all of these, of all of these towers. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of my research was done on foot and some of it was done on desk research, but I was really lucky to, in a sense, lucky to be alive right now when there's so much development going on in the city and the Museum of London Archaeology team, you know, is, is kind of going from site to site, looking underneath all, the, all these new builds, preparing the way and finding some pretty extraordinary things. And I think one of the most, for me anyway, exciting moments was, was actually going into a dig in process on the banks of the Warburg and seeing just this line of very, very black earth along the edge of the, the dig that represented the former River Warburg, you know, and it's, it's, it's pretty exciting, you know, seeing this stuff being dredged out of the city, and particularly in the city of London, which, as you say, is this, this place of, of business and trade and commerce. And I think a lot of people forget that, that it has always been that kind of space. And, uh, you know, seeing things like coins emerging from, from the banks of the Walbrook, always, uh, always an exciting sight. To finish it off, let's talk about one of your journeys around one of those lost islands that you mentioned, so the lost island of Bermondsey. Yeah, Bermondsey. Um, I live in Rotherhide, which is kind of the next bit on from Bermondsey. And um, I mean, the interesting thing about this chapter is that I wrote it during lockdown, um, and I've got two small kids at home, homeschooling. It was a pretty traumatic period of time for all of us. Um, but I was very lucky because the chapter I was working on was in Bermondsey. So I could literally walk out my door and, uh, and use my uh, government-approved hour of exercise to go explore the lost island of Bermondsey. Because like a lot of places in London that have EY at the end of their, their names, places like Battersea, uh, Chelsea, Bermondsey, the EY actually represents the old English word for island, E or I. Um, so I always knew that Bermondsey was a lost island, Bjornman's I, Bjornman's Island. And, um, and I wanted to go and do this kind of perambulation around the island, almost like a beating of the bounds, you know, the, the kind of thing that you would do, uh, you know, with the parish priest on Rogation Sunday. Um, in the end, I, I didn't do that because of the, the, the difficulty of lockdown. Instead, I crossed into the heart of the island and tried to explore um, this really interesting, interesting landscape that is um, a real collage. It's a mixture of, of kind of bombed out infill, former industrial areas, um, some kind of patches of gentrification, um, council estates it's, it's a complete mix um, and in this chapter yeah as I, as I say I, I go across the center of the island and try and map where the edge of it is and where uh, where you end up kind of stepping into uh, the former marshland of the Thames and, um, and you know in a lot of the chapters I, I look to find a particular thing so in the Bermondsey chapter the whole point is that I'm trying to find the lost island but I actually end up finding something else and in the Bermondsey chapter I had a little clue from a previous chapter, I met a guy called Ollie Rahman in the Elephant Castle, and we were talking about geology, and we were talking about kind of places that are sinking. And he mentioned to me that he knew a knew of a, a council estate that was literally sinking into the ground, um, called the Bonamy Estate. And and that little clue led me to to find out that just south of the island of Bermondsey, in what is now known as South Bermondsey, a very industrial area of London, um, there is in fact a geological feature known as the Bermondsey Lake. And this is effectively one of these depressions in the landscape 
um, that you can't really tell today, but from the geological map, you can see that it's an area, uh, a very low-lying area filled with alluvium and also um, peat. And so I ended up you know, walking off Bermondsey Island, the kind of stable ground of Bermondsey, the gravel of Bermondsey Island, and walking into the flatland of South Bermondsey, exploring the edges of the Bermondsey Lake. Um, right in the middle of the lake, you've got the, uh, the new den, uh, Millwall FC's ground. Um, so I went there. And then uh, I went into the Bonamy estate itself, which is um, no longer a sink estate. The whole thing was demolished. But, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was one of the uh, one of the most deprived and kind of structurally unsound um, housing developments in the whole country because it sits on this this very precarious ground in the uh, in the Thames floodplain. So I've been talking to Tom Chivers. We've been talking about his book, London Clay, Journeys in the Deep City, which is out now from Doubleday. Tom, thank you so much for taking us on the journey. It's my pleasure, Neil. Thanks very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.